Hey, welcome everyone to an early edition of Flyer and Ice. Please, before we get into the show, check us out on YouTube. Subscribe to the Heat Ratio Sport Network. That's who we're powered by. Like, subscribe to us, to all socials. We're everywhere. We're on all podcasts. We're everywhere. So today we have a very special show. Today's show is episode 25, and we have a tradition since episode 16 to name a show after a player. I'm going to go Peter Zazel, Peter Zazel episode. Sorry that I'm not honoring Sean Podine, but I'm going to go Peter Zazel. So with me today is Nikki Descaltasti and our very special guest. Ladies and gentlemen, he was the longest tenured athlete during his time in Philadelphia. Mr. Chris Terrian, number six. Chris, thank you for joining us today. Guys, it's a pleasure to be here. I know we've had uh, we've been going back and forth for a few months trying to get on, and I'm really, really happy to be on with you guys. Uh, you do a great job, and uh, looking forward to a little Q&A with you guys. No, we appreciate that. Now, let, let's get right to it. Um, let's talk about your current venture with Limit, Limitless Recovery, how that started, and just tell us all about it. And ladies and gentlemen, all the information about Limitless Recovery is scrolling at the bottom in case you know people that need help, and Chris will get into that right now. Yeah, you know what, really, guys, I'll, I'll tell you when I was, um, you know, as, as my story went, and there was a great article in the Philadelphia Inquirer where it all came out, Sam Carcidi put it out, uh, I believe it was February, and we'd spent uh, some hours together just talking, really, I, I had uh, I'd actually been approached uh, last December by Triumph Books, uh, before I even mentioned my history of addiction, um, you know, if I'd be interested in sharing some of my stories, some of the guys had said, you know, I'd, I'd make for an interesting book read because uh, I was here a long time and I and I saw a lot of the stuff that went on in the 90s with some of the, you know, the greatest Flyers teams, I think, that have ever been assembled in the city of Philadelphia that didn't win. Uh, so they thought it would be compelling uh, to, to get a lot of those stories uh, for a regional read for a lot of the Flyers fans. And uh, before, in the same process, it all started last August when I got fired uh, by the Flyers and by NBC uh, for whatever reason. I mean, changes are made and, and they move on from them. But uh, it's that was not Ed Snyder's Flyers. Uh, anybody running that organization has no ties to Ed Snyder and the greatness that he brought to this organization for years. Uh, same with NBC. These people are hacks. Uh, for the most part, and, and they really, truly don't know, uh, I think, a lot of the good things that they've had through through there. So uh, I realized when that was done that, you know, what I said uh, during my tenure, I was doing uh, both TV with the Flyers down um, between the ice level. And then when I was doing pre and post, I had wanted to do something else. And, I, and going back, tracing back into my history, I had, I had an addiction to alcohol at the end of my career, specifically probably the last two or three years. And uh, uh, it was really, it really decimated my career in terms of my playing ability. My last year only, I could safely say the the prior years I was uh, uh, pretty, you know, pretty good to go and you know, honorable player and came out hard. My last year, I was I was really addicted to alcohol and and I knew that uh, and so many things had happened in 2006. My career had come to an end. My sister had had suddenly uh, had died, uh, you know, and it, it's not so much different than when I, you know, reading the papers earlier today with Jimmy Hayes, you know, brother of Kevin Hayes. Uh, it was almost eerily similar. Uh, she had a heart ailment uh, that she was born with, something that we never would have looked at. And uh, so my life was kind of changed. You know, I was, uh, you know, we buried my sister, uh, I eulogized her, and uh, two weeks later I was in rehab, you know, my first ever trip to an alcohol, for an alcohol addiction. And, uh, you know, it didn't get any lower than my life at that time. So, I, you know, I'd gone through the journey of it and uh, 
having gotten a couple years after that, I, I'd, uh, I'd worked my way through the Flyers a little bit. I'd always been a guy with that, you know, I felt like a personality that was willing to talk. And, uh, and, I, and I had a lot of passion still about the game of hockey. So uh, I got involved in my first pre and post game at NBC. I mean, that's when they had some really some great characters that worked at the at, uh, at Comcast at the time, really, which is a good company. And and the Flyers were so supportive to have me come in and, and you know, at least to uh, follow suit of a long playing career. However, you know, whatever happened at the end, I'd still been here 12 years and still had played the most games as a defenseman uh, at that point and, and still do. Uh, Provorov will beat it someday or somebody will, but that's okay. Uh, but I knew that I wanted to help people, and I knew that I, I'd never forgotten the pain that I was in um, at that time in my life and how it affected me. And, uh, you know, after, like I said, after having bounced out from about 2006 to 2008, I decided to test the waters again to see if I maybe could ever be a normal drinker. And I found out over time that I, I never went back to the levels I was at before uh, of being so out of control. But I found out pretty pretty quickly that I was, I was never going to be able to enjoy uh, – what a normal person can enjoy when it comes to alcohol it took me down a bad path. And, uh, and I, you know, I, that happens to a lot of people. It's a matter of accepting that, uh, and, and understanding it. So February 7th, 2011, I put down the drink for the last, uh, last time in my life. Um, uh, I had a young family, I had a uh, young kids and, uh, you know, and I, that was not the person I wanted to be. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to be, uh, betray uh, my oath as a father to give them the very best that I could. And, you know, uh, it's hard enough being a parent in this world without having to mix, uh, you know, an, an alcohol in it where you're definitely not the best version of yourself. You know, lots of times as a parent, we're not the best version of ourselves anyway, because parenting is that hard. So, um, you know, but but I did. I've Now I've got 10 and a half, almost pushing 11 years now of, of full sobriety. Uh, my daughters have gone on to have incredible success. They're full. All three are Division One scholarship athletes. I don't say that. It's not a financial thing for me. Uh, I looked at it as, as an they they didn't have to worry about a drunk father walking in the gym like that kid in Hoosiers, right? Where he was embarrassed about their basketball, young basketball players had gone on to college D1. And I never wanted that. I always, I always resonated thinking of Dennis Hopper in that movie and how embarrassing that was for the kid. And, you know, those are little things, you know, those are made in movies, but they hit home, they hit reality. And, and so that's what my life was. And I realized, you know what, I don't want to be a loser. I don't want to be this guy. I, I don't want to be, this is not who I was put on earth to be. Uh, I've always believed there was there was something uh, a higher calling for me, more so than hockey. And and last year, after like I said, I was fired by the Flyers and NBC. I decided to uh, to take a uh, to take a trip into the unknown, and that was to reveal my story, let people know that hey, this happened to me. I know I'm not a big deal. I'm not a movie star. You know, I'm not uh, the world's most famous celebrity. I always looked at myself as a very ordinary person that uh, was lucky to have had extraordinary events happen to me in my life that shaped me. And I was specifically playing for the Philadelphia Flyers in, in an area where I was at a long time where people knew who I was. They still know who I was, but I wanted to give back to this city because I'd seen the pain that other people were in. I was in it at the same time. And so I got a friend of mine that I went to football games with, Paul Cates. Uh, he's a great guy. Uh, we talked. He said, listen, if you're doing a project in this city uh, that involves passion, I'd love to be a part of it. So uh, he ponied up. We got together. We bought an existing business. We retained uh, a, a one of our other partners, Dom Chavon, uh, who does our operations. And, and we have uh, slowly uh, but surely worked our way uh, down the path. We're only eight months in. Uh, like any other place, we treat it like a startup. And there's been some hiccups along the way, but there's been a lot of, I, I think in terms of the people that we've been able to, out, to reach out to and the response that we've gotten, um, to my story alike, letting people know, you know, here's who I am. And I'm not ashamed to say it anymore. I'm not afraid to say it. In fact, by me saying it, 
I'm letting the next person know that it's okay for you to say it too, because it's not that big a deal. Erase the stigma. Things happen. Shit happens to people in life, you know? And, and we have to keep, we have to pick ourselves up off the ground. We have to move forward. We can't sit back and cry and whine about it because the only ones who are going to make a real, truly positive influence in our own lives are ourselves and the, and the good deeds and the good intentions that we move forward with. So that's where, that's where it, uh, it, it came uh, to light for me. Um, it's been probably the greatest, you know, again, at the end of the day, maybe, maybe hockey down the road, people remember me in 30 years, but if they don't, I want this to certainly be my lasting uh, legacy on the city of Philadelphia. This has been my home. This is my home for a long time now. And, uh, because I've been here uh, for so very long, I always feel like the, the, the people now, and I walk around, whether it's a Wawa or a bowling alley, a football game, uh, I'm received very well by, by the people here in the city. And I, and I owe them a lot. You know, I've been here a long time, and I'm, and I'm a loyal person like that. Um, and, and the city of Philadelphia has been that good to me that if there's a little slice I can give back to it, I feel that this is this is what it is. Well, it's truly an amazing story, and and I did read that article, and I don't I I wrote you a pretty impassioned letter. Yeah, that it moved me. I mean, it didn't like you said it wasn't because you were Chris Tarian. It was just you could have been John Smith. It was just the letter that I mean, an article that moved me, and I just wanted to reach out and thank you and you know that kind of stuff. And and real fast, ladies and gentlemen, Chris is an amazing parent i survived the early stages of covid by watching his driveway basketball balls those were absolutely amazing i wanted to thank you for posting them those your, your kids playing basketball throwing elbows the intensity i now know why they're division one basketball players and your kid your son is on his way too I got. I have to tell you guys, there's one. So I more people are like, "Hey, Bundy, are you guys going to be putting any more of those videos out?" Right? That they were really competing. And so the last one I went out. I mean, I'm not kidding, guys. These are girls, right? Teenagers. I I'd never heard so many f bombs, and and they tossed a ball. And it was it was nasty, <laughs> a real street ball. And I said, "Well, I'm not, I'm not in this one." But I couldn't post that one, and, and I actually ended up uh, kind of uh, hurling hurling a couple at him after for for throwing the F-bomb in there a couple too many times that I couldn't post it for other kids to see it. So anyway, it's all good, though, but thank you. No, you're welcome. And before Nick starts us off, again, please check the bottom of our screen. Screen, If you or anyone you know is suffering from any addiction, please reach out to Limitless Recovery Centers, and Chris will be in touch with you. Yeah, It's really important, please. Do not ignore friends and family that are going through problems. Yeah. Nick. Chris, that was so incredibly inspiring, man. Your your energy and your positivity is infectious, and I and I hope and I know you're touching a lot of people through this through this organization. And we're we are honored to have you on the show today, man. It's Thank so you. cool. Thank it's you. It's great. Um, so, all right, let's get started. From uh, yeah, I guess from the beginning with you. Um, tell us about your draft experience. What what were your initial thoughts about joining the Flyers um, after your after your draft? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I had a little different uh, – I kind of have to back up a little bit going to that, you know, as a, as a teenager. And, uh, you know, we were talking a little bit beforehand. But, you know, as I said, I coached South Jersey uh, hockey down here. was Comcast and became Virtua. And I think it's like Flyers Elite now. And because of COVID, I pushed my son back a little bit where he's playing football. He's a really big kid for 14. He's like 6'3", 230. So we're going to see how that goes a little bit. At Cherokee this year, he's a freshman. But going back to like my, you know, before, uh, you know, leading up to the draft, you know, at 14 years old, I quit hockey for a year. People are like, how did you quit hockey at 14 and, and then go on to do what you did? 
And I said, well, I kind of joke, I said, either you got it or you don't, right? So, <laughs> but you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of true. You know, I don't think that's ever really changed over the course of time. So I ended up at 14. The only reason I ever stayed in hockey was my dad believed enough in me to say, you know what, I, I've seen something in this kid and uh, I'm, I'm willing to get him out of this area, which was, uh, you know, it's tough. I mean, minor hockey is like we were talking. I mean, it's, you know, you got parents of 12-year-olds that uh, are certain their kids are going to be starting in the NHL the next day. I look at them like, uh, you know, I know like Guy Gaudreau's here, Johnny played here, you know, the little, yeah. it, it makes for the amazing little story, right? The little tiny guy who somehow made it and, and, and has had an unbelievably great career getting points and stuff. But uh, so there's always like the hope and dream. It's no different than anyone else having that type of vision when you're a kid. And I love it. Um, but yeah, I packed it in for an entire year. I skied. And then uh, my dad, I went to Northwood prep school for three years at, at 15. This is an era where there's no social media. And I had two great friends at home. I'd say, you know, guys, I've, I went from five, nine to like six, four. No one ever saw that coming. I got bigger, faster. Up uh, in Lake Placid, right? North I went to yeah, Lake Placid. It ended up being, I mean, it was people say, oh, I went to a U.S. high school. Yeah, well, U.S. high school, it had turned out lots of NHLers over mm -hmm. time. It was a factory. It really was. It was no joke. Like, we would have beaten major, major A teams in Canada my last year. We would have pounded probably three or four of them. Um, yeah, we had Craig Conroy was on that team. He played over a thousand games. I mean, and uh, in myself, I mean, we were pretty, at the end of the day, we had pretty, pretty good NHL players that went on from there. But so I got drafted. I told people, I said, I'm going to get drafted. And they're like, how about you quit hockey? You disappeared for three years. No, there's no social media, right? That tells the story. So I, summer of 1990, Vancouver comes and the Flyers have seven first round picks. And I got picked like they were, they were starting to ring them off like one name after another. And 47th pick, the Flyers, uh, the Philadelphia Flyers select Chris Terrian. And they had another one right after me. Uh, Michael Renberg went 42nd. It was a hell of a draft. If you actually go back in time to look at the names off that 1990 draft, it's without question one of the greatest drafts in the history of the league. Uh, if you look at the first round, even going deep into the third round, fourth, fifth round, there's guys that made it and played a long, long time. Um, so that was good. But, yeah, when, when I got drafted by, uh, by the Flyers, it was uh, – like, wow, uh, you know, you don't you don't know what's going to happen, right? Someone's just going to call your name up. But it's funny, as, as a kid, I had a picture. Uh, I think it's probably one of my Facebook pages somewhere. It was me and my sister. Uh, and we were – I was I had a flyer shirt on. And I was a diehard Montreal Canadian fan because I was from the east end of Ottawa, and that's who we rooted for. The west end rooted for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I somehow had this flyer jersey on when I was probably eight years old, maybe, eight or nine years old. Uh, with a hockey stick in the basement, so I guess if there's a destiny, uh, uh, it was pretty. It was predetermined at a, at a far earlier date than when I when I went on to make it. From there, uh, just quickly, I went to um, uh, I went to Providence College from Northwood. Uh, it was a different time, you know. You didn't go right to the pros. Now you, might, I might have done a year and then maybe turn pro because guys are are are, are starting to turn uh, or play in the NHL at a younger age now. But I went for three years to Providence. Probably should have left after my second. Uh, but my dad wanted me to play in the Olympics. I kind of wanted to tour the world as well. In 1994, I represented Canada uh, in the Olympics at Lillehammer. And uh, right after that, I signed with the Flyers. They were missing the playoffs. They only had a handful of games left. And uh, I went to Hershey at the end of that year. Lockout happened the next year. I made the team in training camp, uh, which was my goal. I went in there and I said, I want to make this team. I don't want to, you know, I felt like I did enough time in college. I played in the minors uh, or the, the Olympic schedule for year which was like the minors in a lot of ways and I just felt like I was ready uh, I had a battle with Eric Lindros in my first training camp and I knew that it, 
if I won that battle, I mean, I knew that I was probably the only guy on the ice at that time that could actually handle him. That's and so cool. uh, and that's what happened. That's that that really set the tone. And I actually go back. I think that's what happened. Bob Clark said, "There's no one else that we have that could handle Eric Lindros. So why wouldn't we have a guy like that on our team?" And remember, I think he said it was like a home run for us. But I was really proud to be here in Philadelphia. I immediately loved the area, the people. You could tell it was a different type of sports town. And it's funny when I look back at Philadelphia. You know, just for the people from the standpoint of of what their their level of care for their sports is beyond what anybody else is. Like, I've been to all these other cities. I've spent days and days, maybe weeks in every other sports city from my travels over the year. And there's nobody, and there's no fan base like the ones in Philadelphia. So when I look back at it now from a player, a broadcaster, a podcaster, talking to guys like yourselves that have passion about sports, that's what resonates with me, and that's why I feel like I'm the luckiest guy, luckiest athlete uh, on the planet to have had this opportunity to play as long as I did uh, in this amazing sports town. Wow. That's good stuff. And it, it really is. It's and true. It's- and, and I say, like, I'm not here to, I'm not throwing it out. If this was like Buffalo, I'd be like, wow, like I got stuck in a, in a hell hole. Like it's <laughs> Buffalo. I'm not, no offense to the people of Buffalo. The town's a dump. I would have hated to play there. Uh, <laughs> Philadelphia is a blue collar town too, but there's something, I mean, listen, and I know the bills have the bills mafia and they, they love their team. But I didn't like the look of it. I love Philadelphia for all it was. And I especially loved it for the fact that, like, I loved that they threw snowballs at Santa Claus when I heard that story. Like, I thought that was awesome. I know some people, like, it's a little mean. It resonated <laughs> with me. And I felt the ire of the fans, too. Don't get me wrong. Like I said long ago, if you played in Philadelphia and you have not been booed by the fans, then you really didn't play in Philadelphia. And I've, I've been booed here and I've been cheered here. Well, you've been mostly cheered, and I'd imagine a lot of that has to do with the fact that you were a number one paired defenseman with one of the greatest defensemen in Flyers history, Eric Desjardins. Can you please share what it was like playing beside him all those years? Well, let me tell you, first of all, the importance of, of Eric. So we had two Erics that were great Eric players when I played here, right? And this is a fact that no player would disagree with. If Number 37, if we had a choice to who we'd rather have out of the lineup for a week, number 37, Eric, or number 88, Eric, we would keep the 37 in the lineup and put the 88 out. That's how important this guy was to the team. Um, I didn't play with him till about my third year in because the first year was a half year. And I remember Terry Murray, they called me in. He said, we want you to play with Desjardins, but you haven't stepped it up. Like your game, you haven't gotten better from last year. You're just playing hockey. And I remember what happened my second year was third year. I'm sorry, my third year. He started scratching me about mid-season. Mid, uh, it was my third year as a contract year. It was the most rude awakening I'd ever gotten. And I think that every single player needed to go through what I went through because it, it made me who I was the rest of my career. I never complained. I worked my ass off every day. I stayed positive. And, and I got in, the, in probably the most incredible shape that I was in through the two assistant coaches. Like, they didn't give up on me. And the coaches said, we're going to push this guy because we think there's a lot more there. And finally, when I came back, I was playing really well for three or four games. I can't remember who it was with. It might have been with Shell Samuelson again. And I remember one next day, they had the lines out. And he said, you're out with Desjardins today. And that started a 10-year relationship that never stopped. And I tell you what, we had some moments together. Like, the worst part for anybody on those teams – was the fact that we can't look at the city and say, we want a Stanley Cup. Because those teams should have won Stanley Cups 
um, repeatedly, whether it was the lack of great goaltending, the drama that we went through some playoff series, that team and those teams, and I'm writing a book about it right now as we speak, um, were the best Flyers teams, I think, in the history of the franchise that never won a thing. And, uh, and they were certainly loaded with talent, uh, chemistry. We had uh, characters. And, uh, and, I, and I think, you know, it shows you how very, very difficult it is to win a Stanley Cup, you know, to get there all the way because one team wins at the end of the day, right? Take the last 10 teams. If you go back in time, back to 2010 when the Blackhawks beat the Flyers, I mean, you know, there's a couple teams with multiple Stanley Cups in that 11-year span, right? So what that ends up being like four or five teams at one Stanley Cups. It's really, really hard. But it was my truly, I think you ask anybody, and even the alumni game this year, you know, I look at it, that would probably be most guys' biggest regrets and players that play in those teams was we were just too good that we should not have won a Stanley Cup. But, of course, uh, the, the the biggest letdown, I think, in terms of playoff losses would have been 2000. That was a, an unbelievable team uh, to have had a 3-1 lead and uh, the collapse that uh, ensued after that. We were beating Dallas that year. There was no stopping us. We were on a mission. Um to prove a lot of things. And uh, that to me though, of all, wasn't even the Detroit in 97. It was losing in 2000 in the semis to the devils because it never should have happened. You know what you are, you're a psychic because you just addressed a future question, which I will, uh, I guess, uh, tweak a little bit now, <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, that's good. Um, real quick. I, I wanted to, I want to mention or ask you this question and I, I'm probably wrong. When you, first came up I, I remember going to an exhibition game was gordon murphy did he come up around the same time as you he was before me okay yeah i never really I, he was only here as a coach uh when i was doing tv i didn't really know him as a player okay all right for some reason i visualize you guys on the ice together yeah well, no that was a um man those you to, to be able to play on the the caliber of 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 team that you played on in those you know, that mid to late nineties up into the two thousands. I mean, you, you really just had a, you know, just were so fortunate to be on such quality, quality hockey teams. I mean, that, that's just unbelievable. Who, who, who you have, you still have any close friends from, from those playing years and do you stay in touch with some of the core guys? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, me and John LeClaire were great friends. We were roommates for 10 years. Uh, I could sit here for 12 hours telling you me and John stories guys, but, uh, We'd probably get locked up by the time I was done telling him. Uh, we ran pretty hard together. We had we we were he was a great teammate. Uh, you know, one hell of a hockey player. You know, always ready to go. There was a lot of guys over my time here, like Desjardins, uh, Shell Samuelson. I still keep in touch with a lot of guys. Live locally. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, he came a little bit later, but Keith Primo, uh, Donald Brashear. There was a lot of guys that lived out here. Brian Boucher, of course. I still he lived used to live right next door to me all the time or for for a few years. You're, you're naming all the players that had that had kids that played. My son played with Caden and Cal Claire and you know all, all the people that you're talking about. Um, Matthias Samuelson. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Everybody, everybody you just named is like in my head. Like, oh my god, you know, we see him at the rink all the time. Yeah, you know, so and his kids and and Hatcher was coaching Comcast at the time when my my son was coming up through you know the, through the U system. That's funny that you named all those names. It was just yeah, like, and it's all, I mean, we all had kids like the same age, right? So yeah. that's probably what it is too. Most athletes, you know, you say like guys that go to the rink, we're all fathers too. Like you know, the kids are playing, so you leave the rink, the kids are you know playing street hockey together somewhere. It's not, it's no different than anywhere else, especially hockey players, because I think we leave the building. 
and we still have the reputation and I, I can attest to it of just being the most regular guys. Like I'll leave practice and go to a Wawa and get a hoagie after, uh, you know, that's, that's the kind of guy I was, you know? So, yeah, and that's, I think that's just a hockey player thing. I don't think that that's different anywhere. I, I don't think. And another thing I wanted to reference when you were talking about how you were in the best shape of your life, weren't you renowned for always winning the bike trials in Avalon? I was, I, I mean, I, <laughs> you know, I was one of those guys where, yeah, I did. I used, we won it one year. We won, we actually was me, Rick Tockett and Chris McAllister. We won it so bad one year that the cop, we were so far in front of everybody, the cop told me to take a left because he didn't think it was possible that we'd be. And so I took a wrong corner and we lost the thing because the, the guy gave us the wrong direction. We were ahead by like 19 minutes. And I tried to plead with Jim McCross and who had, I said, we won. He's like, I, I know, but you didn't finish the line. I said, the cop gave us the wrong way to go. <laughs> Uh, but I was I, I was a big bike rider. That was my, my thing and uh, in the summertime. And uh, we had the option of coming in and doing the run or the ride. But, uh, yeah, I don't know what the – you know, a, a lot of that stuff, guys, is uh, – I think it's changed. They've, they've kind of come a long way with their conditioning. But I, that's that's what we did. We rode the bike. We ran. We lifted weights. And uh, as soon as training camp came, we were off to the rodeo and ready to go for another season. All right. So we'll get this one out of the way early. You referenced Eric. You referenced number 88, how if it was up to you between the two Eric's, he'd be the one that would sit. Yeah, you know, obviously, um, that's you know, between just the two Eric's, not your teammates in general. But what was it like in the early stages of being his teammate to the ridiculous soap opera in 2000? Yeah, and, and I think, yeah, I think it's a fair question, you know. I mean, I, I, first of all, I think, yeah, to know like what. When I came in here, Eric Lindros, when I came in in 93, 94 season, right, training camp, I mean, he was the he was the biggest name in the league at the time, right? He was what everybody wanted to see. He was a revelation. He was this physical power uh, that could score, had the soft hand, all the things we knew about, right, the physicality. Um, he was a package, you know, and he was considered at that time uh, a generational superstar, right? generational superstars do not never lose go back in the history of hockey look at every single generational superstar and look at how many stanley cups they have uh and that's the only way you can gauge it right like if you take the go to the nba you got michael jordan larry bird magic johnson LeBron. uh lebron they've all they've all they're all generational players they all came in you go to go to the nhl go right back to the 50s gordy howe um you know, Wayne Gretzky, Mark Messier, Mario Lemieux. Messier's not even there. Lemieux's a generational talent. Eric Lindros, Sidney Crosby, Connor yeah, McDavid. Yeah. Uh, no, I wouldn't call him that guy. No? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. He wasn't the first overall pick. Right. He wasn't that guy that absolutely – don't forget, Yager only won two Stanley Cups with Lemieux. Right. That's not taking anything away from him at all. Yager's, a, you know, obviously a, dy a dynamo of a hockey player. But he was not considered the guy that was going to piggyback a team to a Stanley Cup. Right. He never did on his own. But neither did Eric. Neither did Eric. Um, when I came in, I'm not kidding you, and there's some guys that would tell you this too. Um, you could get caught watching him on the bench some nights, like as a player, where you're just like, holy Jesus. Like a guy was a freak, right? He would just run three guys over, take the puck, make a play to the net, or just make an unbelievable play. And the whole building was like just spellbound. 
you know, I, I think the first two years up until the Stanley Cup Finals, I think was the best that Eric had ever offered for this for this city in terms of his play on the ice. I, I believe that. I never got better after that. Uh, that's where the, the Terry Murray choking incident and all the things started to kind of collapse at that time. And I think when you end up, and you know what, you said it a little bit, and I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not a guy that likes to deter or to take shots at former teammates, but when a soap opera ensues off the ice, I can assure you the soap opera will ensue on the ice as well. Um, 2000, I would say, would be a year where if you could take 22 guys that were driving in one singular direction, in spite of, that would be that team. And that's why that team was going to win the Stanley Cup in 2000. Um, everything else, you're right. Everything else ended up being a soap opera. Um, you know, you can't run around in, in, in the league that time, uh, you know, when you're running guys over at 12 and 13. They think you're going to run guys over at 23 and 24 in the best men's league in the world. You can't skate with your head down through the middle. Um you know, and injuries happen, unfortunately. Eric definitely got bit by the injury bug. There's no doubt about that. And that affected him as well. It was just a lot of the garbage, I think, that went on on the side from both sides, the Flyers and Eric's side as well. Uh, but there were times like going after a trainer. Those are not things that we – those aren't things that uh, we do as, as athletes. You know, we don't accuse a medical trainer of, you know, malpractice um, and, and dealing with soap opera sheet kind of things that – nobody really wants to deal with in a men's locker room. Well, let, let's build on that bef before I get to next, next question. What was a consensus in the locker room? It would, it, the whole part of that soap opera was, should he play in the playoffs when he's ready or should he not play in the playoffs? And he played pretty damn well when he started, when he dressed, but what did the locker room want? Truthfully? No, we didn't want him back. Okay. No, there's no question. There's, I don't think, I mean, I think guys can figure that out. No, we did not want him back in the lineup. There was an understanding that, you know, I mean, I could, uh, there's a deeper story I'll save for down the road, but I mean, there was one night where, you know, we were talking. It was in that series. I remember Rick talking, saying to guys, guys, like, who do you want where we're at right now? We were rolling along, right? You have to remember we were talking. I think when we had a team conversation about it, I mean, the census was, do you want him on your fourth line or do you want Peter White on your fourth line? Well, guys like Peter White. Like, so, White. you know. Like he was, he fit in. Like he was one of the guys, you know. So there's, the, and that's like the the weird part is is getting that through, you know. I didn't, I yeah, he played five minutes a night. He killed penalties. He's part of the group, you know. He was part of the Pittsburgh, you know. We took Pittsburgh down, down 0-2 at home, you know. I mean, we, of course, we know the story, right? The the five overtime game. Um, so there was things like that, you know. But I mean, yeah, I, I think ultimately we wanted to use his talent, but I don't think it was worth. Uh, the end result was terrible, and I don't think there's anywhere else you can point the blame to. There isn't. Interesting. Yeah. No, another name, Peter White. That Jody Jody Clark and and Peter White's son Peter played. Go went up through the ranks, with uh, you know playing against them as well. Great people, by the way. Yeah. Um, who yeah, was? But you know what? The one thing too, guys. Like one of the things that Eric. I mean, he had injuries. There is that is true. Like he did have a lot of injuries late, especially head injuries. Um, but I just felt like at that point, I, I think it was almost, we were so deep in the playoffs. We were so close and we were so united as a group. I mean, to have gone through, we went through in Pittsburgh, the five overtime game, taking a three, one lead on a team. I don't know if we believe we were, we could beat was the devils. They were always our thorn in our side. 
Yes. You asked me, you know, what we thought. I mean, yeah, I think that's what – I don't know where else to put the point yeah. to blame. Bush was playing well. Uh, for some reason, those last two or three games, our best players were not our best players, uh, and something clearly affected them. Who was um, who was your favorite coach, and who was your least favorite coach to play for? Well, my least favorite coach was Ken Hitchcock. Um, he was just miserable about <laughs> everything in life. Um, yeah, he's like the kind of guy when he leaves the rink, like he'd go home and be like, all right, great, I bitched at everybody all day. Now what am I going to do now? Uh, Roger Nielsen and Craig Ramsey were unbelievable guys. I mean, they got it. They got it. Like they understood like you're going to lose games some nights where you probably shouldn't have lost. Some nights you're going to play like crap, but we trust you. And we know that most nights you guys are going to be great. Like whoever it is, he understood that that's the way the team went. They were really good people, really good hockey people. I, I, you know, I don't, I didn't have many coaches. I didn't like, um, even like Billy Barber. I like Billy. Um, he was a good guy. Like he was like an all in type of guy. He was a throwback coach, but I liked them as a person. Terry Murray. I liked Terry as a person. I loved Wayne Cashman. He cash was just like, you know, he still thought that if he got hit wrong, he should go like take your stick and spear a guy right in the mouth. And uh, it was a little bit past him. And that, and, and he always felt like, you know, I remember he told Bob Clark that year, like, I'd like to be an assistant coach. Um, I don't like being a head coach. <laughs> so, all right, well, we'll make you, we'll make you an assistant coach again. So there he went and Roger came in, but I play with a lot of them. Hitch was just, Hitch was the kind of guy where um, he just would wear you out. You know, um, it it just never stopped. You could be playing great and he'd be yelling at you at the end of the bench. And you have like three guys telling him, shut up fatso. And it would just take away, it would just distract the whole bench. And, uh, and, and, and off days, like, I mean, we would, he would break down a win to a point where you know you didn't even you couldn't even pay attention to the video by the end of it because there's too many games coming at you and if you're at a point now where you're starting to like critique wins in an 82 game season well it's going to be a really long year yeah it sounds like the you know the story stereotypical the coach the coach has lost his voice kind of a thing you know enough is enough i mean you hear the same message over and over and over again who's paying attention anymore right 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 that, that i want to build on that real fast so i'm going to Nick, I'm going to skip my next question because Chris has covered it already. So I, I kind of have a philosophy that there's three kind of coaches. You got your player coach, the militaristic coach that you just referenced, and the guy that's somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. uh, the slash and burn coaches are the Mike Keenans, the Hitchcocks, I guess Laviolette to some extent, Tortorellas of the world. Um, I mean, do you agree with that? Do you see that a lot? And what kind of – I mean – Obviously, a general manager has to say, okay, listen, this team failed. The coach was way too soft. We got to go in a different direction. What's your perspective on how does it does it, does a manager need to find a coach to suit the players, or do you have to change the, the culture of a team by going after a different genre of coach? It's a great question. Yeah, I always think like, you know, it's funny. I used to talk to Hitch a lot about coaching and stuff too, even though we didn't always get along as a player coach. But as I got later in my career, I remember talking to him a little bit as a coaching thing. And he would always say there was always different ways you had to coach based on your personnel, right? Like if you had a more of a veteran team. And, you know, there was a theory in Dallas. I'll give you this one with Hitchcock. There was this theory that went on for years that he purposely made the team hate him to kind of revolt against him and play hard in spite of him. Almost like the, the situation here in Philadelphia with, with 88, but no one really, like, I don't think anybody hated Eric. You know, we were disappointed maybe with how things 
were shaking up off the ice. I don't think anyone hated him. Hitch was the kind of guy though, like where he, you know, he would he could do things to you. Um, I remember, <laughs> I remember we were walking out of a rink one night in Colorado, and uh, Mike Keene was there. Of course, he played for for Hitch in Dallas, and and we're walking out after, and uh, Hitch was coaching the Flyers, and Keener Keener says, "Hey, what's up, guys? Does everybody hate Hitch yet?" <laughs> right, in front of, right in front of Hitch and we were laughing like I'm thinking geez yeah we do we really do and so uh, this one, it, it was really funny though but uh, so he, he would go to the extreme on it and then um, uh, there were other guys like I think Billy Barber tried to be more of a middle of the road type of guy um, and then you had like I like Roger and Rammer were uh, Ramsey were more the player kind of coaches right with Terry Murray a little bit also Really good with veterans. He was not great with younger players. Um, but, you know, I look at it, if I didn't have Terry Murray as my coach, I might not have made it past my third year. So I'm really grateful that he was hard on me and he coached me hard. He did. He didn't make it easy on me. Um, and, and I'm and, and today, when I look back at it, I'm, I'm, I'm really, really thankful for that, that somebody didn't, that didn't give up on me, put me through the ringer sat me out, made me stew in it, but I responded the way that they wanted. And after that, I, I probably never missed, missed another game again until Hitch came around. All right, Nick, I'm, again, we're skipping my next question. It's been addressed. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll jump to what happened or uh, what, your, what your thoughts were and your feelings were when you got the call that you were traded to Dallas. Well, what the, what was, I mean, based off everything you just said about your – your love for the city and your admiration and loving it here and being here and being, you know, the longevity you had here. What, what was that like? I mean, was it, was it really that devastating? Well, I knew my contract was coming to an end at the end of the year. Um, and so we also knew there was a real possibility that this lockout could be a real thing. So I'm thinking, well, first of all, at that point I'd hated Hitchcock so much that I was like, thank God. Like I was done with him. And, um, you know, it's a lot of it's a that's an interesting storyline in itself that whole year because you know I ended up coming back after that two years right. later. You know, ironically that year the Flyers had a great team. Two thousand four, I wasn't there, and you know, again when you get to the semifinals uh, that far and that deep with that kind of team, you know, you probably want to get back a couple of those defensemen. Maybe you traded at the deadline, like myself and Eric Weinrich, instead of having to play Sammy Kapanen on defense. Um, I was still a shutdown defenseman. Ed Snyder, I was told, Clark Clark told me, he goes, Snyder didn't want to put on any more salary. We got Malakoff. We knew you were miserable. We had to, we had to get lose some salary with it as well. Um, you know, I talked to Clark about that like two years later. He's like, it was, you know, I mean, we loved our team, but, you know, we didn't know we'd have the injuries we ended up having. That's why I always say, right, sometimes you need 10 defensemen to win a Stanley Cup, uh, especially then. Now you can you probably use seven. There's not not quite as physical, but, um, but yeah, that's what happened. They had, they had Little Sammy Kapanen was playing defense against Denny uh, LeCavalier and, and Brad Richards and those guys, and that was those guys were my assignment players. You know, I still would have been able to handle a bigger body at that stage in my career, and uh, I was I was I was disappointed, I guess, from the standpoint that the Flyers had a very good run. I didn't want them to win that year. I was if they won the next year, no problem. I didn't want to be here eleven years and have the Flyers go win. I know the fans were like, well, too bad, but. That's the way I felt. I'm just being honest with you. That's human nature. That's human yeah, nature. I don't think anybody anybody could fault me for that. You know, why why not call me the same thing? He was here for four years. Like, I don't know if I want these guys to win. So really hard to cheer for them. Uh, but you know, I and I knew if they beat Tampa that they were gonna beat Calgary. 
as long as their defense came back together. I don't know if that was going to happen. I think Desjardins was close and Marcus Ragnarsson as well, but that's the key guy. I wanted to get your opinion on him. He was terrific. The steady, he was a steady guy. And then he got hurt. It was, it was the final straw, I believe. It was. And he was just a grinder. Like he was a good, hard, tough Swede. You know, he played, competed hard. He was like a smaller shell or Alf Samuelson in a lot of ways. Uh, but that, that was an excellent flyer team. Even at the end, with even without the guys they traded, they just got hurt. Yes. And uh, yeah. it, cost, it, it, did, it did cost the city a, a, a Stanley Cup. Not getting rid of me and Weinrich, just the fact that they had injuries at the time. Right. It decimated them on defense. So. Right. Is it, is it, it, I guess it's my turn again. Sorry. Fire away, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so our crew, and you, we refer, you, we talked about this a little bit at pre-show. Um, we all believe you are an amazing analyst. We loved you uh, on the ice. Um, we loved you pre- and post-game show. And I, 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 I don't believe in disparaging anyone on this show. So I won't talk about the current person in your role, but – it, it's it's mind-boggling. However, you turned it into a silver lining, as you referenced with your yeah. uh, limitless recovery yes. um, venture. However, what was it like transitioning, like you said, from the ice into that broadcasting position? Yeah, you know what? I started on pregame and I kind of worked my way up. Um, radio happened pretty quickly. I think Brian Prop had been doing it, and, and I was yeah. getting in. And, you know, I think I think anything like broadcasting, like being a player sometimes or a coach, it's who likes you. And I was lucky enough to have had guys like Peter Luco, who was uh, the best boss I could have had. Him and Sean Tilger. I mean, those guys were unbelievable under Ed Snyder. I mean, that was when an organization was run the way the fans of this city would want to know it was being run. Uh, they were incredible people, and they cared about alumni. I mean, I look at the Flyers now. I don't know if there's another team that's fired as many alumni as this organization has in the last year and a half. Uh that would be something that Ed Snyder would just go crazy over, knowing something like that had happened to, to alumni. Um, but it was difficult at first. Uh, and I realized that when I, you know, and I told them, you know, I had somebody, um, I had a couple of weird things happen in broadcasting when I first started. And it was, um, didn't really shit, you know, change who I was. But I knew that when I was doing this, that the best job I could do was just to be myself, you know, just to be who I was in the locker room. Uh, Fudge it a little bit, no F words, uh, you know, watch your language and just be who I was. And I, and I, that's who I was in the locker room. You know, I'd said what was on my mind. I wasn't afraid to, you know, and I, and I've been, uh, you know, I know you're talking about, you know, and, and I mean, guys come up, it's not his fault. It's no one's fault when someone else gets plucked up or fired. You know, I don't hold any animosity towards him. Um, I've had, I've, I've had 5,000 texts or messages here, like what's going on. I don't have an answer for you. I don't know why things happen the way they do. And quite frankly, I don't care anymore. Uh, I did a little bit of coverage last year. Last season for the Flyers was such a dumpster fire um, that I don't – I've never seen anything quite like it. I mean, when the mascot became the face of the franchise, um, <laughs> like I watch that every night. I'm going, oh, my God. Like this is – I'm living in an, an alternate reality. The fans would feel it too because – that's what I mean. There's a certain demographic in Philadelphia that the fans want to see. We love the Philly fanatic, right? He's great. He drives around on the, the, the four-wheeler. We like all those kinds of things, but they cannot dominate the sporting event that you go to. And I think we saw that too many times last year where they were looking for alternate things to make up for the lackluster production uh, and, and what people were watching uh, on the product itself on the ice. So uh, 
I hope that changes this year. Um, I'm back in it. I will be joining a podcast, as I said, on Twitter last week on September 1st. I can't really say what that is yet. I'm looking forward to it. And like I said, I wanted to talk hockey last year to kind of mix the two things together, both recovery, uh, which is my main thing now, getting my message out about Limitless. If you need help with mental health or addiction, call us. The second thing I wanted to do is not to just – there's a lot of people said, hey, you know, buddy, we'd love to still hear what you got to say. So I always felt an obligation to some of the fans that did love listening to me after um, that kind of stuff. And and uh, and I felt like I wanted to say it. So I'd, I'd gone out. I'd met with a few podcasts over the past year that had asked me if I had any interest. I felt like in a shortened year last year with me just getting going uh, with the recovery business that it would have been the wrong time to, to stay involved, especially with nobody in the building, to be doing everything on Zoom. I mean, it was it, if you're ever going to take a year off, if you're ever going to get canned, Last year would have been the, probably the good year to have had that happen uh, with two shortened seasons, uh, a playoff yeah. in August, uh, and, and a, uh, you know, in a, in a very dismal um, hockey season after the first 10 games for the Orange and Black last year. So uh, I decided this year I'm going to get back in it as full as I can. Uh, of course, I won't be doing anything on, on any kind of TV, but if I can get on uh, once in a while and uh, throw my views around after a hockey game or the next day, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it unfiltered. Um, you know, I think sometimes when I look back at doing the job after you'd been there so long, uh, you realize that, uh, I realized that I really wasn't getting paid, um, to say the things I said, I was actually getting paid to not say the things that were really on my mind at times. So I think it's kind of funny in terms of how, you, how I told that line, but, um, you know, I was always going to say what I thought about the game and I was never going to try to put perfume on a pig and make it look like it was any better looking of a pig or smelt better when it was still just a pig. So, uh, and that's maybe why I'm sitting here now, but um, that's who I am. And I'm glad I never changed for anybody. Well, it's probably why you are and continue to will be beloved in this city because of your, your brutal honesty and the way you articulate that is, is, is right on point. I mean, you're not offending anybody. You're just, you're calling it what it is. And and that's great. So, I mean, now that you brought it up, uh, you know, since we're, we're discussing the off season and, and, and last season, what are your thoughts on like the key transactions and the pieces they had to give up or the players they brought back? And um, in your opinion, are, are they in better shape now than they were prior to making the moves? I don't know. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of like other hockey guys, let's just say players I've played with that are maybe now coaching in this league and uh i've asked them and they're like what did you guys do i said you're right i don't i don't like what did we what did the flyers do so again if you looked at the moves they made in the offseason i i mean you got rid of patrick who i don't know maybe he'll be a player but you can't wait around for eight years trying to figure out if the guy's ever going to get his crap together right so he moves on phil myers to me reminded me a little bit of uh uh like i his decision making in his own zone uh, they're, they're mistakes that I don't think he'll ever be able to repair. Like sometimes those guys in the zone, you can think your way out of it. He looked to me like one of those guys that was never going to be able to think his, think the puck out of the zone um, and make a good solid play on it. So, but again, you still traded two young guys for an aging defenseman that's had injuries and, and Ellis. Do I like Ellis better? I do. I like him a lot better than Phil Myers. So yes, that's an upgrade. Um, the Gostas Bear one makes me absolutely sick to my stomach that they have to give away a pick just to get rid of him. Uh, I thought they were actually getting the seventh, the second and the sixth or whatever it was. I'm like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I had to reread I almost tweeted. I'm like, oh, my right. God. This cannot be right. So that, that to me, I, I, like, I hate that move so much. I hate the fact 
that the league has put themselves in, in that kind of light to do business like that is sickening. Um, people are, were stunned by the Voracek move. Well, I'm as stunned in reverse about that move. Like, so you know, they know from before that Jake hates the city of Columbus, right? Like, he's never been too shy to say how much he hated there. So they traded him back to Columbus for a guy who, by all standards, looks like a, a dream player. I'm missing, I feel like I'm missing something here almost. With the Atkinson for Voracek straight up, like, I'm not sure if I, someone's like, can you believe the Flyers pulled that off? And I'm like, yeah, well, what's wrong with Atkinson? Is he all right? Right. You know, I don't, I, it's weird to me. Right. We'll see. Again, you know, I mean, I'm hoping that that ends up being just a great move for Columbus because I like Jake Voracek. I did. When he was playing and engaged, uh, he was a good player. Unfortunately, a lot of nights he wasn't as engaged, and I understand uh, some of the Flyers fans, uh, you know, uh, dropping it on Jake some nights, you know, and, and that's the way he plays. He's an assist guy. He's a highly skilled player. Um, trying to think what else I'm missing here. I feel like I'm missing – Ristolainen. Which one? Ristol. Ristolainen. Okay, so I actually – when he came in the league, that's a funny one. So I've watched him come in right from the bench level, and I've never seen him get any better in the six years he's been in the league. He never got better once. Uh, they call him an analytics disaster. Yes, we, we, still we discussed traded, that. We still traded quite a bit to get him, like a lot to get him. Um, so I always, you know, I'm always skeptical, like just to make change, just to make change, to make change doesn't always sit well with me. And maybe that's why I'm not a general manager right now. But I, I think these are a lot of hope for moves. It's a lot of humongous change for the season. Uh, you know, I don't like looking at it, but because I've been in that situation, uh, I don't know what kind of a year poor Kevin Hayes is going to have, uh, you know, with the, with what went on, happened to his brother, which is just so sad. Uh, Keith Yandel. I like Keith Yandel. Uh, Thank you, Trevor. Trevor, yeah, I see that. Thank you, my friend. Uh, that's a good move, you know, for nine, whatever, 900, the, uh, the yeah. veteran minimum uh, power play guy. Uh, don't expect any miracles to develop in the defensive zone with Keith Yandel. Uh, but I do think he'll defend better than Ghost did, and I think he, that he will certainly help a guy like Cam York uh, develop a, a lot better than, than a Shane Goss's very well. So I like that move as well. I do. Right. And then Ristolainen, one thing I do like about him, guys, he competes hard. You know, I'll give him that. I, he competes really hard. He may run 15 feet out of the way to try to compete, but he does compete hard, and I can't take that away from him. Well, maybe being on – the third, the third line pairing could help him out versus being right. a top line defenseman. He's not a top four guy to me, uh, right? On, on a on a championship type of team, he's a no. third pair depth guy uh, that uh, really, I think, you know, unfortunately in Buffalo they've thrust a lot of guys. Why are we talking about Buffalo again? Um, but yeah, they they, uh, they they thrust guys in there pretty quick, and, and before you know it, you can really ruin a young guy pretty quick if, if they're not seeing the puck uh, actually in the offensive zone instead of playing defense the whole time in their own zone. Yeah, Rasmus Dahlin's going to be right right behind everybody else that's coming up that way. Yeah, yeah. Got to be careful. Got to be really careful with young defensemen uh, and goaltenders too, And which, you know, let's talk about goaltenders. That'll be another one of the big, big questions this year for this team. All these moves are great. They're all – I like I like Ellis. I hope he stays healthy. I hope Bristolainen uh, gets his game more. And I hope everything works out for this team this year, but none of it will. Unless if unless the goalie gets back to some form uh, of greatness, that's correct. Um, yeah, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't matter. I mean, you and that's the one thing in this league, guys. It's pretty much never changed over the course of a hundred years. You're only going to go so far in a playoff series. Uh, 
as far as when your goalie wants to take you that far at the end of the day. It's true. Uh, the Flyers with Bernie Perrant. I mean, you know, it's nice they had rough teams, and, and but any guy will tell you from Bobby Orr to Bob Clark, Bernie Perrant's the reason that they beat the Boston Bruins and, and carried the Flyers to, the, to those Stanley Cups. Certainly the, the, the first one against the Bruins. Uh, so, I, I, you know, again, it, it, it's a lot of pressure for a young goalie, but this is um, – uh, this is a kind of kid that, that has to rebound um, or it could set the franchise back five to seven years. Again, if, 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 if that's not the right answer and goal that they had him pegged, I, I tend to think he'll be back. I do. I have to believe he will. He'd been too good in other games, guys. And I, I just think last year from a goaltending standpoint, a young guy who's, you know, very, very mentally into it, very mentally in check. It looked to me like a guy who, um, just couldn't find a rhythm in, in a very, very odd year. That's what it looked like to me. Well, throughout our – it's funny you referenced what a horrible dumpster fire year it was. We started our podcast during that dumpster fire year. So things will only look up for our show as well if they get better. <laughs> um, so that, that you think of the, we had to discuss the same stuff at nausea oh. about what was – so that – I'm going to build on what you just said. Um, my – so we have we have two other guys that aren't with us today, um, and we've gone back and forth. It's defense's fault. They left them out to dry. But I've always been, you know, save percentage guy. You know, confidence maybe the defense, you know, killed his confidence, but he let a lot of bad goals in as well. So is it the chicken or the egg? Um, what's your ultimate thought on why he had a collapse last year? Well, I thought that there was games like yeah, it looked to me like he got rattled early, and, and I think the other thing last year too, and I said this midseason. Ivan Provorov is not a number one defenseman. We say he's it all not, the time on the show. I mean, I, he's a good player. I mean, but he's not a number one. Let he's alone not, 19 minutes a game. Number one playing half the, you know, just. Yeah, guys, I, I, you know, they're thrusting him into that. And you got broadcasters on there telling the fans every night, the guy's Bobby Orr. No offense, JJ. But it's true. I mean, it's, 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 I, I sat and listened to it. I'm like, what are you guys talking about? He's a nice, really nice player, but he's not Raymond Bork. He's not. Yeah. And so the sooner that, and that's why they're out. That's why they're out trying to. They, they ought to probably you know get two young guys away for Ryan Ellis to find stability in that top pair. They still don't have a number one defenseman. That's the fact of life. They do not have a number one defenseman here in Philadelphia. They got like three number twos. Um, I don't know if Ellis, that gets Ellis you. can't be that guy, Chris. You don't think Ellis can be that guy? No. No. No, I mean, I want to. I'd love to tell you yes, but no, right. I'd be lying if I did. Okay, he's a he's a very good player. He is. He's been in Nashville. He's been to a Stanley Cup final. He's not a number one defenseman on any team in this league. Can so, can if you put the two twos? Now listen, there's not a lot of teams. There's some other teams that don't have a number one defenseman right. either. There's a lot of them that don't have a true stud number one defenseman. Like there's there's only one Victor Hedman, right? Um. You know, like, actually, it's funny you say that. I, I just mentioned that name because I find Provorov to be a lot like Sergachev. But Sergachev is not – he's not their feature. He's uh, hes a, 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 a minute eater, but a guy that they don't rely on as much. You know, in terms of what – in terms of the big minute stuff that, that, that Hedman gets. Uh, you know, he's there. But that's what I think Provorov can be. He can be a minute eater. He's just not a top power play guy. Um, and I think that they're going to have to find get those minutes down a lot. I'd like to see three minutes come off. I like to play see him playing twenty one, 
minutes a night, I think you'll see a much better game. Yeah, we, we brought up the Zergachev analogy. We, we, uh, you're a smart man, Chris Terrian, because we discussed that same thing on our show about he, he would fit better as a complimentary second pairing defenseman. He is. And, he, yeah. and I'll tell you what, if you had that, you'd have one hell of a second pair. Yeah. So it's, can Cam York develop into a number one? I don't know yet. I don't know guys. Like I, I've only seen him play a little bit. I, you know, again, there's small, there's small guys out there like defensemen with that offensive flair, like Quinn Hughes, you know, Quinn Hughes is good. Same with this, you know, with, with young York, but again, you know, you get in those deep playoff series where you need those trench defensemen in the corners in your D zone. I don't know if those are your guys, you know, you still need that workhorse. That's why that David Savard gets traded to Tampa this year. Just gobbled up those dirty minutes, right? No one says anything about it, but the, you have to have one of those guys that does that, or two of them. You know, you can't have those finesse defensemen back there eating and gobbling up big-time playoff minutes in the D zone the whole time. It's not feasible. Real fast before Nick has a question, I just want your opinion because I threw this out a lot last year. It killed me when they signed and wasted money on Gustafson. But in theory, now the guy might not have wanted to come here. Maybe he signed quickly. But I wanted Borbayetsky on this team because he added he adds grit. He's a team leader type, and I was just, just your thoughts on that because he he signed for essentially the same money that Gustafson signed for. Yeah, I thought Gustafson was absolutely horrible here. Yeah, like I mean, as as bad a defenseman as I've seen wear that uniform. In, in a decade. I'm not kidding. It was that bad. And, uh, you know, he actually, to his credit, I'll give him credit, he actually played pretty well in the playoffs for Montreal. He did. So they had a great decor. He, he did. He played within himself. He was good. He played in the power play. But his stint here in Philadelphia, and that happens sometimes, guys, where someone will come in and it, right. it just does not work. I think Chuck even said that. He's like, for whatever reason, it just didn't work with, with Eric. So, uh, Borvietsky, yeah, I like, I like Mark Borvietsky. He runs around a little bit, but I mean, you know, if you want him, do you want him or do you want Aristolainen? Now, what would have costed less to get Borvietsky? You wouldn't have to give away a first-rounder for it. They're similar type of players. Uh, yeah. but, but I do like that Borvietsky kind of Gudis type of player uh, in, in that sense. Gudis had a great year last year for Florida, which, uh, you know, they, they were raving about him down there. But you know what? It, it's, again, you know, you may want a guy, but that guy may – there may be 22 right. other teams that wants a guy, too, at a certain price, and he's going to have to pick one of them. And – uh you know, it's one thing with Philadelphia. It's it, unfortunately with free agency. I mean, I remember this was a place before where any of the top free agents, you get nervous in the late 90s, early 2000s because you're saying to yourself, man, everybody wants to come to Philadelphia. That is not the case anymore with hockey. And uh, so that's, that's another interesting part. But I, I mean, there was a time when players would, would like their first call would be to Philadelphia. Ed Snyder had provided that kind of leadership that said, you know what, guys wanted to play hard for him. So they figured, what may as well come over. I'm going to have a chance to win a Stanley Cup or get deep in the playoffs every single spring. Why not? Nick, what what are your thoughts on the the coaching staff? Can A.V. be the guy that develops these younger players and and gets them to the next level? And can he (laughs) reinvigorate this team after what happened with this dumpster fire last year? Well, I think he's going to have to. He's got a lot of pressure on him, right? I mean, like, you know, last year, no matter what you say, I mean, you can, you can say it's a player's fault or, you know, the, some guys had off years, but the coaches had bad years too. I mean, they did. This is supposed to be a world-class coach. You know, I think one of the things too with AVI, I think he'd tell you this. I, I like his demeanor. I, I like it a lot. 
Um, he's also been a guy who's been very, very blessed to have had two great goaltenders in his coaching tenure in the NHL with Lundquist and Luongo. Uh, and last, and he had a great year the year before. Carter Hart, Carter Hart also had a, a great year also, right, heading in. So uh, last year the goaltender had a bad year, and it's kind of funny how the coach has a bad year when the goaltender ends up with a bad year. So, I, But I do think AV a- is, a, is, a, is a very, very quality coach. Um, that I quite frankly, he's going to need to, he's going to need, this will be a very results oriented season for the Flyers. There's not going to be any time right. to, uh, which in itself could be a problem because you're trying to gel all these new people together and everything, but there's no, I don't think after coming out of this pandemic, the financial losses that a lot of these organizations have, have suffered that uh, in Philadelphia, that there's, there's going to be a, um, a grace period with this team. There's no way they, they, they can't afford it. Yeah. We had, I forgot who it was. We have a free agent coach sitting out there named Rick Tockett that this town would love to see if, yeah. you know, we don't want to see the Flyers get off to a bad start. But if they get off to a bad start, we're going to have another Hitchcock, Laviolette type. Start you, know, firing. Uh, you, 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 you know what? You could. I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, if you just I always look at a GM to see how long he keeps coaches around. But I think that Chuck's uh, Chuck's a guy that's had a lot of uh, very few coaches in his career. I don't think he likes change. Uh, but that being said, this is Philadelphia, and it's not always just the um, the general manager's assessment that counts at times. There's a lot of voices that come in across that, and and there there will this is going to be no matter whether they believe it or not. This will be a very very important year for this team. Uh, they have to make the playoffs, uh, in my opinion, uh, for the for the you know future of the franchise and where they're at right now, and for the message that they're trying to get out to the fans for the next you know five years. Because I mean, you're kind of your core. So here we are. What are you gonna? Who are you gonna be? I All think right. So last last question before we get yeah. to a little fun. Gun to your head. Carter Hart has a solid year. I'm not asking him to be uh, a Vesna candidate, but he has a solid year. Do they make the playoffs? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I do. I, I really do believe that. Yeah. He needs to have a good year. Very like a, above average year. He needs like. He needs to have like a, a an above nine hundred save percentage. Yes, right. It has to be above. If it's less than that, it's going to be it's that's going to be tough. But it's going to come down. Like I mean, it's a fine line. Like it's not a lot of points. It's it's three or four losses here or there, right? Compared to three or four wins, and that gets you up, up over the hump of making the playoffs. You know, it's one or one goal here or there. Um. So you know, and they went backwards last year in terms of the goals that they were giving up. Like they they cut that down the year before significantly, and last year it was just pathetic again. So. Uh, and, and usually when you have like, I mean, they had a couple games this past year that were um, uh, like fan killers, like that Ranger game, the nine, nothing. No. Those are ones that will shut. You could shut a fan base off for an entire year with one game like that. It did. It, it shut them out for the rest of the year. It was a fun post game show though. They slammed the entire season, that one game on the entire, on, on the orange and black all year. It was, it was pathetic. All right. So I'm going to get rid of the uh, fancy schmancy. And you might want to put your glasses on, Chris, because uh, I I believe I I had to squeeze some players. So this segment between them there. Yeah, you look good. You look good. So let me, uh, Vance. I'm Vance. I'm sorry. We have a guy named Vance as part of this team, and this is his job. And I'm I'm sorry, Nick. Nick, what time is it? It's time for the penalty box. You're right in there with them, Chris. Yeah, yeah. Grow some hair. You'd be a Hanson brother. So this is a segment that we do each and every show where it's not today's hockey. It's 
yesteryear stuff. We talked about our favorite and worst jerseys. We we did a great couple shows on draft redos. You mentioned the 90 draft. Mm -hmm. No redos necessary for the Flyers, but we did some draft redos. And, of course, I'm old school because I'm a big um, Broad Street Bullies guy, so we did favorite tough guys. So this show is going to be all about you to some extent. So I've pulled up here players of your era in categories and I want you to pick one. You can pick all, you can pick two, but pick one in each category and a little storytelling about each on the ice, off the ice, if you could. So the agitators of that era, you had Darcy Tucker, you had Sean Avery and Matthew Barnaby. And of course, YouTube, Chris Terrian manhandling Barnaby all through all over the ice in that brawl with Buffalo. But Chris, what do you say about those three agitators? Is so, there one that jumps out? Yeah. So I'm going to go Barnaby for sure. Um, he was a quintessential type of like guy in the ice, never stopped barking. He had his, like, he had like a Buffalo Sabres tattoos on his teeth. For some reason, a guy that was not, I mean, I was not out there getting paid to be a goon. I think I fought this guy five times in my life, but between the minors, exhibition games, and regular season. And that's a lot for me. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sit here and pretend I was Muhammad Ali of hockey. I was not. Uh, but he was pretty effective. He was a pain in the ass to play against. Uh, you would have loved to have had him on your team, I would imagine. Uh, but he was, a, he was a pain in the ass to play against, and he didn't care who you were. Um, you want to go to the next one too, right? Well, I mean, Marty Brodeur for goalies. Okay. I, I actually scored a regular season goal against Brodeur. It was a slap shot from the point with nobody in front of him. and went up over his glove. It was Roger Nielsen's first game as coach. And I'm thinking, boy, that's an impression. I'm like, I mean, how the hell did Brodeur not stop that? I wasn't going that hard. Uh, he was the reason I don't have a Stanley Cup, at least one. So I can safely say Marty Brodeur has deprived me and uh, the core of the Flyers in the 90s of at least one Stanley Cup. Did your teammates feel the same way? Like, were yeah. they like, oh, crap, Marty, or oh, crap, we have to face Dominic Hasek tonight? Uh, you know, it's funny with Marty. Like, uh, you know, there was – I never felt like we were getting into a, a situation with him where he was just uh, um, so dynamic. But at the end of the day, the, 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 the stats were there, right? Like you'd, you'd lose 3-2 or something, and you still got two on him, and you're like, you got two, but you never got more than two. And he had the, the, the ability to make that crazy save at the most important time of the hockey game, right? So And, that, and that's goaltending, you know, at the end, like in a playoff game, uh, you know, he makes a big save that someone else didn't make, and, and that ends up being the difference. To me, he's the best goalie, I think, I think of all time. But that might be – Boy, that might be your top two out of your top three. I'm actually going to put Bernie in your top three goalies of all time. I am. Uh, with Wah and Brodeur. Hasek was a hell of a goalie. It reminded me of Roman Czechmanic when I look at the other ones. And Patrick Wah is just a stone-cold winner. Anybody that ever played with them. I mean, there's some great stories. Remember he told John LeClaire uh, and his team in Montreal against L.A. He said, guys, take as long as you need to score the goal in overtime because they can play all night. They won't beat me. So you guys go out and have fun. I mean, what a what a thing to hear from your goalie uh, in the, in a Stanley Cup final game. Top yeah. defenseman, uh, that's Raymond Bork right there, right? I'm just trying to get in on a little. Bork, bit. Leach, and Lidstrom. Yeah, so Leach would be at the bottom of that for uh, those three for me. Uh, Lidstrom, Lidstrom to me is the the best defenseman ever to play the game. He's okay. taking uh, over from Bobby Orr. Okay. Uh, he was the reason they beat us in '97. 
Um, they matched him and uh, Nicholas Lidstrom and Larry Murphy against Lindros and LeClaire, and they never touched him once the whole series. Uh, they dominated the Lindros line, those two defensemen, and that was the end of our uh, finals in 97. Raymond Bork was a world-class player long before I was in the league. He dominated the 80s as well. Uh, he was one of the few guys I could actually say when I look at Bork, like where I looked across the forums, like I see the Gretzky jersey behind one of you guys next to the Clark one behind you. Yeah, that was and, behind me. Holy shit, I'm going to play Ray Bork tonight. Like, to me, that was just so cool. Same with Gretzky uh, and Warmups. But those those three guys. And, and Leach was another guy, uh, a, ter- a terrific defenseman. I never really felt like – I never felt Leach was really a, uh, a paramount player when we saw him. He was great, but he never – he never drew uh, the likeness to me like Nicholas Lindstrom did, who was just tremendous. And the goal scorer is there at the bottom. Well, I mean, well, I- you have to discuss. You have to discuss before. I, I hate to interrupt, but you have to discuss why you so dominated Yager when you defended him. What did did you just get juiced to play him? I did, and and I had so it. It was probably my second year in the league. Uh, it was a Sunday afternoon game on Fox. And I got I got out against them. It's it funny. I wasn't supposed to be on the ice against them. They had another matchup. And uh, and I remember running them and like early. I'm like, oh, good, good, got a nice shot on Yager there, softened him <laughs> up early. And and it was it was um, it was Terry Murray. And I remember Terry said, leave him on Yager, just leave it for a little bit. Nice. And he comes down again. And I pound him again and again and again. Now I realize we're in the third period. He doesn't have any points. I don't even know if he's got a shot on goal. He gets so mad in the first. He punches me in the head, and I just start laughing at him. And the whole building goes crazy. We're in Philadelphia. So, and this went on, I mean, this went on, guys, for 40 games in my life. And I still was saying, was he going to get me tonight? I mean, he would come out on Sundays, right? And he knew, like, most guys would be gambling on football or whatever, like the whole league was. And I remember he lined up at, like, 10 after 1. It was a 1 o'clock start on Sunday, NFL Sunday, and he comes up. He starts calling me Bundy. (laughs) Hey, Bundy, Bundy, who do you like today? And I go, I go, F you. I said, you're going to have the longest afternoon ever. Don't try to be my friend. And so, uh, and I didn't say it like that either. It was way worse. I, I hit him, and then I remember Dan McGillis about eight minutes later ran him, and he left the game, never came back on the ice again. That was it. But I just, for some reason, you know, you talk about having a guy's number. Uh, I had his number. And, you know, and I remember, I mean, we got the playoff series where I remember someone went to Mark Recchi, like, you know, this could be a big, I think it was 2000. And he says, nah, he goes, I'm not too worried. We got Bundy. He'll handle Yager. And he was dead serious. And I'm like, holy gee, that's a lot of pressure. You know, but he was serious. Like, he goes, I'm not worried about him. Bundy takes care of him every time he plays him. And he said it in the paper. And I'm like, wow, like this is, this got to a whole new level of, you know, like, is it a fluke? I started to wonder if it was becoming a fluke. I'm not lying. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm handling this guy like he's. You got in his head. Yeah, I, I did. Head. And, and, uh, and I owned him in his career. And he, and you know what? And, and, it, and he said as much, you know. People ask him, who's the hardest guy? He said, it was me. Um, when he played here, we kind of became friends. We talked about it a little bit. Um, but uh, it was actually funny. One night he was he was right in front of me in the anthem. One night. I'm going to finish with this story. But he said, uh, I was behind him on the Flyers bench. You know, I was bet- uh, between the benches. And I said to him, um, he was doing the anthem. I looked over. I go, you're so lucky I'm not in the lineup tonight. <laughs> <laughs> And I could just see him starting to chuckle a little bit behind the bench. And he was laughing. So, uh, but anyway, he, he ended up being a good guy. And, and God bless him. He's going to be 50 in uh, the, the new year. And he's wow. still, uh, still going strong. And 
I think it's I think it's a great great hockey story, and he's been a terrific uh, he's been a terrific player for the game of hockey in general. And I, I salute Yarmir Yager for for his career and for what he continues to do. It's pretty it's, it's it really is impressive. Now I'll close with this question, and, and when we when we wrap the show, Chris, I've got to say, don't, don't jump off. Sometimes when I do a close, the the uh, guest just clicks off and said we, we want to say a few things afterwards. So just hold on, please. So. The top goals, these these three were the leading goal scorers of the 90s uh, in goals. So mm-hmm. the, reason, the reason I want to address Shanahan is because he, he was a complete player. I mean, so what was it like facing a rugged guy that, you know, when the, the puck's going in the corner, you're, you're like, crap, Shanahan's coming. Simultaneous went out to me getting the puck. Like, what was what was your thought process when you had a big dude coming, after, coming your way? You know, I, I never I, – I played a lot against Shanahan. Uh, he's another guy. I mean, you go in the corner, you got to get ready to get hit. you got to be ready to be physical. Um, I remember in the series and in, in the finals, I mean, I remember being very physical with him. Uh, I never had an issue. I mean, I'm a big guy too, so, I mean, he understood that. Uh, but there are guys that will just give you a little bit more grinding. A guy like Brett Hull, so my three on that list getting to it would be Brett Hull. I didn't play him as much because he was in the West. Um, but he was one of those guys. The problem with Brett Hull is he got that in a lot like Shanahan too, but he got rid of that puck so quick off his stick. And, uh, that's what made him so dangerous. You know, you can be the best defense in the world to position yourself, whether your skates are there or the best position to block a shot or get a stick on it. But he got rid of it so quick with those hands that it sometimes didn't matter. And that's why it was so difficult for goaltenders to pick up how he shot. They had this great snapshot. That was a lot like other guys slap shot. So I'm going to put Brett Hull at the top of that list. Shanahan, probably a, a pretty pretty darn close second uh, in terms of that release. Well, that wraps up the penalty box segment, and it ultimately wraps up our show. So, ladies and gentlemen, we hope you enjoyed Chris Terrian, unfiltered, as it were. I can't wait to – when the book comes out, I can't wait to listen to you on your podcast. Listen, there's no competition. We will share your podcast on all our sites as well. Um, thank you for joining us. And, ladies and gentlemen, please go to – Heat Ratio Sports on YouTube. Subscribe. We are on literally all socials. Go to our handle at Flyer and Ice Pod. Click on the link tree link, and you can find us on any streaming mechanism out there. Whether you watch it, iTunes, Spotify, any any streaming thing, you can watch a show or listen to our show. So on behalf of Nick Tossi, Chris Terry, and I'm Dan Green, we will see you soon. Jason Martinez will be coming in the near future. So again, good hockey, everyone. We look forward to the start of the season. Take care.